was really very beautiful, wasn't it? In our world these days, don't we need just that? Just an ounce of beauty every now and then. A good sermon is really um, a good writing exercise. And then a good delivery is uh, not giving away the end. I'm going to give away the end. The end of the sermon says that our suffering should be interrupted every now and then by beauty. I think that's one of the reasons we come to this place, to interrupt our suffering with just an ounce of beauty. So thank you, choir, for interrupting all the suffering places of our lives with a moment of beauty. So now you don't have to listen. I'm done. <laughs> but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Many years ago, I was leading a spiritual formation group for our children. Each Sunday evening, the children would come into the classroom, and there were no tables, there were no chairs in the classroom. I had moved everything out. The room was set up in stations. There was a sand station and a gazing station and an art station and a reading station. We would remove our shoes as we entered the room and gather in a circle seated crisscross applesauce. And there would be an opening moment together for me to introduce the Bible story for the session. But then the rest of the time we were in silence together working on our own stuff. And I would ring a bell, and I would say one line, and they had memorized how this little responsive back and forth would go. So I would ring a bell, I would say my line, they would say their line, I would say my line, they would say their line, and then they'd switch to the next station. They weren't assigned stations. They could go to the gazing station. They could go to the art station. They could go to the sand station, wherever they felt like they wanted to spend their time. But when I signaled the bell, the call and response would come, and we would make a change. I had conditioned them with the bell and these words. If you hear a bell and I say God is good, you say all the time. I say all the time, and you say God is good. So God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And I wonder, did that stick with those children? Yesterday, I was actually with our son, who's almost 25 years old, and he was in one of those classes, and he said, uh, who's preaching tomorrow? And I said, I am. And he said, what are you preaching about? And I said, well, the title of the sermon is God is Good. And he said, all the time. <laughs> and I knew then that it must have stuck. Because then I said, all the time, and he said, God is good. I hope that all of those children feel that deep down in their soul, that if they're in some church somewhere in their life or someone says to them kind of in passing, God is good, I hope they feel deep down that response all the time. God is good all the time. God gets credit for a lot, and God shoulders the blame for a whole heap. 
It's because we have an insatiable desire for things to make sense. We love explanations. We need for goodness to be rewarded and evil to be punished. We hate it when bad things happen to good people because we, that doesn't compute for us. Likewise, it seems inexplicable to us when good things happen to people that we deem as not good. We like it to all be fair. We like for things to add up. We need to be able to make sense of it all, and preferably we would like it in a neat and easy way to understand and package and explain it. I think that's why we hear so much trite and simple theology bantered about. This past summer, we preached a series entitled The Folly of Conventional Wisdom, where we dismantled so many of the truisms that we hear in faith, like everything happens for a reason, or hard work pays off, and God never gives you more than you can handle. We had a bunch more. These sayings sound so good, and I wish they were true. But as we discovered this summer, life is more complex than our desire for simplicity and easy answers. But I found one that works for me. God is good all the time. So I'm fascinated that after Job rails against God, after Job offers a barrage of questions for God, after Job really lets God have it, what we expect, what we desire, what we want, what we need is for God to say, Job, you know I don't ever give people more than they can handle. If you listen to many Christians talk, you would think that's exactly how God is going to respond to good old Job. But God knows better than to offer Job easy answers like, well, this is more than you can understand. So just simmer down and offer me your praise and adoration. God doesn't request for Job to humble himself and just live out of gratitude. God does not offer easy answers to Job's burning questions. God does not explain it or rationalize it or justify it. So why do we so often do that on behalf of God when God does not see the need to do it for God's own self? Stop trying to rescue God. Instead, God has some questions for Job to consider. They're more rhetorical in nature. God is not expecting Job to respond to these questions. God is here reminding Job that Job is simply mortal, living in an out-of-control situation where nature is beyond our grasp and where life is coming at us full force, bringing the good and the bad, the bitter and the sweet, the ups and the downs, the mountains and the valleys, the long and winding roads and the crooked places in the path. 
How does one explain suffering? It cannot be done, at least not in any satisfactory way. The text for today began with, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God came to Job in a storm, or as a storm, or out of a storm. Perhaps that's because when we are most inclined to turn to God, it's in the storms of our lives, out of desperation and despair, out of chaos and confusion. We let loose with all of our whys and sometimes even our why me. Because we want answers and explanations and reasons and justifications and clarifications. Because don't we at the very least deserve that? But God goes on and on and on and on with the biggest parental lecture of all time. Pointing out the beauty, the beauty and the unbelievable energy of all creation. God lets the magnificence of how the world works speak to Job's distress. God does not ignore Job, and God does not chastise Job, and God does not placate Job. God simply reminds Job that goodness resides alongside the despair. That beauty sits beside evil. That hope walks with doubt. That happiness accompanies our grief. That laughter attends our pain. And that mercy abides with our suffering. And in this lengthy answer, to, God, to Job's questions, we catch a glimpse that God is alongside us through it all because that is not just the right thing for God to do, but that is the good thing for God to do, to be present through it all. The world is not centered on us. I know that's really hard for us to accept. But the world is not centered on human beings according to the divine speeches. And God goes on and has multiple speeches here. According to the divine speeches, the world is not centered on human beings. It's not an entirely safe or predictable world that God is showing Job. But it is still beautiful and good. And God invites Job to live in that wild and beautiful world. As one Old Testament professor writes about this passage, she says, "In this is this an adequate response to Job's suffering? It is not." She says, in any conventional sense, very comforting. God would probably fail a present-day pastoral care class. Nonetheless, she says, 
These speeches of God at the end of the book of Job accomplish something profound. They move Job out of his endless cycle of grief and into life again. They enable him to live freely in a world full of heart-breaking suffering and heart-stopping beauty. And to do so in a way that reflects God's own care for the world. How are you living in the heartbreaking suffering and the heart-stopping beauty of the world? God responds to Job with some questions that offer perspective. As another commentator said, What is immediately striking about the divine speeches is that they are full of powerful images that are focused almost entirely on the workings of the universe itself, on things which humans know little about and over which we have no control. And we hate that because we, not just I, but we have control issues. What we see in the book of Job, and particularly in these divine speeches in this section, is this understanding is false that we have control. And that while personal piety and virtuous behavior may be worthwhile in and of themselves, they may not necessarily lead to personal gain or success. And this is disconcerting to us. We want the good guy to win and benefit in the end. But it can come as a relief in that it is very clear that victims of tragedy, illness, violence, poverty, among many other things, are not necessarily to blame for their own misfortunes. Life comes at us. But did I mention... We want things to be neat and tidy and explainable. And when we can't get the answers that make sense to us, we make them up and put them in God's mouth. You know that we do this, don't you? When we can't make sense of things, we decide what God would say about it, and then we say God said it. And that's how God gets all the credit And that's how God gets all the blame. Because we assign the blessings and the curses of our lives to God because we are so uncomfortable with mystery. Is it not enough that God is simply with us, beside us, alongside us for the journey, no explanations needed, just present and good all the time. Can that not be enough? Many years ago, we were in a hospital room with a church member and his wife when the surgeon came in. The doctor was explaining the procedure that was to be performed, and he said something like, I've done done this surgery many times. It's definitely what you need to have. And if it's God's will, everything will turn out fine. And that wife piped up with, 
oh, it's God's will for him to be fine. I thought, yes, a thousand times, yes. Why would God's will be anything other than that? Of course God wants us to thrive and to fare well. Of course God desires what is best and good and right and just for all of God's children. Because God is love means that God is good and goodness only seeks goodness. But as God reminds Job here, all of the goodness is often located in the midst of suffering. That's why we turn on the TV and read the newspapers and follow our social media and we get all stirred up because everything is so terrible and horrible. And we come here for just a moment, just an ounce, just one song that might remind us to take what we have and go back into that world and bring beauty to it and fight for what is right and good and just for all of God's children. Speaking into the suffering out of the beauty. I'm indebted to an article that I read in Patheos this week about this text. The article was entitled Prophetic Grief Meets Prophetic Beauty. David Roberts is the author, and I used some of his words in the meditation that was printed at the beginning of worship. No answer, he says, even one from God, is ever satisfactory in the midst of our pain and grief. Nothing solves suffering. Nothing answers it. But neither is suffering and grief the whole story of our lives and of the world. There is beauty and grace and hope in the world too, existing simultaneously in paradox, side by side. And like suffering, beauty cannot be explained. Like suffering, beauty can only be experienced. And like suffering, beauty changes us. In essence, Job is asking where in the world God has gone as he looks around at all the suffering, and he demands to know why God has forsaken humanity. And then Job's friends try to shush Job for what they hear as blasphemy, and God condemns those friends for shushing Job's honesty. And then God doesn't respond to Job's indictment. God doesn't give Job an answer. God doesn't try to explain it. Instead, God responds with the beauty that lives alongside the suffering. Roberts goes on to say, I'm not sure these are competing views, suffering and beauty. I don't think one negates the other. God doesn't respond with beauty in order to cancel out or disregard Job's suffering. But then he goes on to suggest that we learn to let beauty interrupt our despair. That we let beauty interrupt our pain and our grief. So in all of your places of pain, maybe you let a moment of beauty interrupt it.
and in all of your places of bliss, may you recognize that all is not right and well in the world. And in so doing, may we be changed by suffering and may we be changed by beauty so that we can see and respond to the world as, God's, as God does with love and with goodness. God is good all the time. May it be so. Amen.